0: Welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus Who live and work in the city of Glasgow And it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives So as well as listening to this podcast We'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning Or get involved in one of our missional communities Which are across the city throughout the week Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Good morning. So we are starting the book of Revelation this morning. Gulp. (laughs) Got to be done. Got to be done. Uh, The apocalypse. The unveiling. The revelation of Jesus Christ um, by uh, John. And um, it, it, as, as we begin it, it it's, it's striking and somewhat irony, I think, to me, as we think about an apocalypse. Um, the sort of, we're in this cultural moment where a lot of the apocalypses are, are coming from. the sort of church used to be the place where in the, the street corners, you know, the placard, the end of the world is nigh, sort of image of apocalypse. And actually, in my mind anyway, there's a, a certain irony that the end of the world is nigh is a message that's coming across uh, from a lot of quarters, uh, but not um, much from the church uh, in, in some corners anyway. So it's, there's a certain moment of time where, of the size of issues that the world is facing that and that is a, a reoccurring uh, theme at the minute. But I want to begin with this whole this series, a study in the book of Re- Revelation by by asking you to reflect about your own experience, whether positive, negative, or completely bamboozled or neutral when it comes to the book of Revelation. Up to this point, what's, what's your experience been on that? I'm going to ask you to reflect a little on that. Because this book has a, a bit of a, a long history on, on, on a spectrum with, with two, two poles. On, on one, it's been... Uh, what some would say, functionally decanonized. And on the other, it's been hyper-canonized. Now, canon is, is the books that kind of made the final cut of the Bible, the, the final canon. That was, That's what we mean by that. And so for some, it's functionally been decanonized. In other words, it's there, it's in our Bibles, but it's dabbled with, or we hardly ever touch it because it's the sort of the untouchable book and we barely read it. We barely make any sense from it. So therefore, We have it, but we may as well not have it. It's functionally decanonized. Um, And then, of course, in its history, it's also been hyper-canonized. It's had its fanatics. It's had its people who want to decode it, who want to find out what all this means. And when the code is broken, then we'll know when the end of the world is going to come and how it's going to come. And all these positions that are often speculative about how the end of the world is going to come. And it has led to a fanaticism, sometimes in deeply unhealthy ways. Um, think back in my own lifetime, shows something of my age, I can still remember the, the Waco, Texas um, cult with I think it was David Koresh, and he was citing a lot, he was, he was the second coming and he was citing the book of Revelation, which is one of his key messages, and it's not he's not the first and I'm sure he will not be the last to, to use it in this really hyper-canonized uh, way. So there is a a bit of a a more controversial history with the book of Revelation, more so than than I even properly um, realized as I came afresh with the sort of daunting task of of preaching through this. Um, For example, here are some characterizations of it from a variety of critical perspectives. And I'm particularly indebted to Michael Gorman's um, helpful commentary um, called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And he alludes to a whole bunch of of different people who have had critical opinions on the book of Revelation, starting with Martin Luther. You may have recognized his name. He was a famous uh, one of the reformers, Um, so a pretty important person. He said this, speaking of Revelation, is neither apostolic or prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Now he was writing in 1522. He lived from 1483 to 1546 and I'm reliably informed that later on he would soften his opinion. Martin Luther was famous for the epistle of James and uh, the revelation as being Borderline should this be in the final cut of the Bible. He later on would soften his position and use and refer to the Book of Revelation, but he would never write a commentary on it. That's Martin Luther. An American political writer writing in the 18th century, he was a pamphleteer, no idea what pamphleteer is, I think it's a political writer. Um, he says this it's a book of riddles that requires a revelation to explain it. Helpful. And then our friend Frederick Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, however you pronounce it, 1844 to 1900, he says, he would say, it's the most rabid um, like, fanatical outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. Well, thanks for that. Um, playwright George Bernard Shaw um, says, it's the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. Okay? And then Tina Pippin, a feminist uh, New Testament scholar, uh, refers to it as a misogynist male fantasy at the end of time, writing in in 1992. Um, Luke Johnson, who's a a New Testament scholar, he he says this about history of interpretation. He says, it's largely a story Of tragic misinterpretation resulting from a fundamental misapprehension of the work's literary form and purpose. He's saying this tragic history has come from a basic missing the point on the, the genre, the type of book it is, its form and its purpose is leading to all these things. And despite its checkered history of interpretation, the book of Revelation is firmly within within the canon of scripture. It's firmly a part of the worship and life of the church. In fact, it's where we get a lot of our hallelujahs. It's where we get our holy, holy, holies. It's where we get our crown hymn with many crowns. It's words that have gone along with Handel's Messiah. It has had a rich history of being involved in the worshiping life of the church. Even if it doesn't appear too often in the lectionary, the church is selected readings. So, taking our, our steer, to, if we're going to explore, study, learn, hear from God, and, and how he wants to speak into our lives, it seems we are going to have to start with wrestling with the, the type of book it is, the form of it, the genre of it, and what the purpose of the book is, if we are to, to live faithfully according to that, what it says. So what type of book it is, and how does this inform this? And we have to start here even over who the author was, which we sometimes start with that. The author was John. Who was John? John was John. Uh, John. It, it, it was not, we don't really know who John was. We know he was on Patmos, and quite frankly, some days in the last month, I wish I was on Patmos. But John was on Patmos probably as a political prisoner. He was a respected figure in the early church in Ephesus. He was a known figure. He obviously knew the person of Jesus, but it's not necessarily John, the writer of the fourth gospel. We just don't know who John definitely was from a scholarly point of view. So in some ways, John was John. um, He was, and he's put together a bit of a masterpiece, this apocalypse um, which we have before us. So when it comes to the actual nature of the book, most scholars would agree that the book of Revelation is a hybrid genre. So it's a hybrid book made of different parts, which is a, it's an apocalyptic, prophetic, circular letter. So next time you're sitting on the bus and you're, you're reading your Bible and you're reading the book of Revelation and somebody goes like, what are you reading, pal? You get to turn around to him with a quite smug, well, a hybrid genre. I'm reading a hybrid genre, which is uh, an apocalyptic, prophetic, circular letter, to which you'll probably go like, what on earth is that? What do you mean by that? Which is an incredibly helpful question because it quite quickly takes us to the heart of what this is all about in terms of hearing from God. And what is this? What does it actually mean? And what do we do with it? And most importantly, how do we read it? How do we read it responsibly? How do we um, read it and hear from God? So apocalyptic literature, and we need to understand in, a, in whatever way we can, to whatever degree we can, uh, myself included, what this type of book is in its hybrid genre. So apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is a thing. So you just need to know that. It's a thing. It's, uh, it's been a Jewish thing. It's, it's been a thing outside the Jewish faith. And there are examples of it in parts of the Bible, like Daniel and parts of Mark's Gospel. I think it might be Mark 13. Don't quote me on that. It's somewhere in Mark's Gospel. There's extra biblical sources of types of apocalyptic literature. Um, and it, it tends to have these characteristics. Hopefully, there will be a slide um, for that. So it tends to have, just to help us get our heads around it, a disclosure through a heavenly being, and which comes in a narrative form. And here is a, the disclosure is from this heavenly vision and this theophany, this appearance of, of God in a sort of angelic uh, form. And apocalyptic literature has that. It has this disclosure given in a, in a visionary sense. As a a literature, it's used in times and deployed in times of crisis and great persecution when the seen reality is is intimidating and chaotic, and the apocalyptic unveiling to pull back the curtains shows us and lifts our eyes to the transcendent, to what is really going on behind what we can see with our eyes. So it's deployed in times of crisis, and it lifts our eyes to unseen realities, pulling back the curtains. And therefore, it's highly pictorial and, and symbolic in its description, and often um, it's dualistic in its its um, depiction. So there's no, no, no great, It's black or white. It's good versus evil. It's victory and defeat because of the, the nature of it. It's trying to awaken us to the transcendent. And I think this theme of awakening is some of the main themes that we are going to come across in this book of Revelation. So the significance of that when it comes to reading it, this is that we read it as highly symbolic. And within it we, we parse out the literal and the non literalism and sometimes the literal non literalism, things that we are meant to take literally and things that we are meant to take symbolically. So if I was to say to one of my boys, Max or Benjamin, you you're you're going out in this match today, you, you need to watch. Their defender is an ox. He's a he's a destroyer. You know, if if Max was to which he might do actually take me literally. He'd be like, "Why on earth are you sending me out like to a, a bull? Like, he might not know that. Well, you know, what's going to happen to me? Like, my limbs going to come back, or you know, well, hopefully. But if he just doesn't pay attention at all, he, he is going to get. Um, well, he's going to get nowhere. So what Max should do is go like. He's not going to expect an actual ox, but he's going to expect a tough player who, if he doesn't hold his ground and actually stops himself being pushed around, he's going, to be, he's going to be in trouble. And so there is a reality beyond that, but yet actually when you take it literally, here ends and begins all the problems with the beast, the whore, Babylon, the head of the beast, 666, and all these things can become these mysterious things when actually Babylon is speaking of the empire of Rome. The beast and the whore are talking about aspects of um, that reign of Rome. The beast in particular is talking about Rome's military and political smite. And then the chapters that speak about the whore and whoredom is the, the criticism of Rome and its wealth and how it rides in the back of its military strength uh, as this, this great whore who, who prostitutes himself with their wealth. And this head of the beast is, where it gets cut, is emperor, probably Nero, could be Domitian, but I'm not a scholar, if but I don't know, it's one of the two, I think, at best, and this number, 666, that's fascinated so many people for so long, even that, in, which we'll come to another week, but the spoiler would be, it's got a Hebrew code that actually, again, has taken us back to probably the emperor, Nero, in terms of who he was, and also lives on as a type, which we'll come to, but not necessarily when somebody's going to pop up and we have to figure out who he is. Just spoiler alert. So symbol, highly symbolic, apocalyptic. It awakens our senses to go like, right, what's going on here? Prophetic literature. So apocalyptic, prophetic. Its prophecy is not just like we sometimes is prediction. You know, words that are going to tell us what's going to happen. There's some degree of that at times. But if you remember. Um, If if you want to know how it's all going to end, just watch. Don't look up. That'll tell you. Just go follow that. Uh, There's my Netflix recommendation for you. Great film. Um, um, Sorry, no more. Um, The prophetic literature is a a word to God's people. Um, Have we got a slide for this as well? That will keep me right. It's it's God's word to concrete situations in that day. And if you remember from Jeremiah, it was words of warning and comfort. It was words of judgment. And hope. And it was God calling his people back to faithfulness, back to alertness, to the covenant love that he was offering. And he's showing them their state. And he's saying, look, if you do this, this is going to happen. It's not faith, it's faith. It's this dynamic relationship and the prophetic tradition. And John stands firmly within the prophetic tradition, but from a An incredible vantage point that none of the prophets did, because he stands as a prophet who sees the Son and knows who the Son was fulfilled in the way that the Old Testament prophets did not. But it's calling people back to faithfulness. So there's a prophetic feel to the the book of Revelation. But it also has this pastoral letter, a circular letter for that as well, which we have a slide for that, which... um, in some ways, we're a bit more familiar with this. We, it, we, we get, at least to a certain degree, when we read a Bible or we read the epistles or letters of Paul, we get that he was writing to actual churches, actual people, context-specific. And so we know some of the moves we make. When we read it, we try and wrestle with what was going on in Ephesus and what was going on in Philippi in order to, first of all, wrestle with that before we just apply it to ourselves. And in a similar way, this is what we do with the, the book of Revelation, there are parts of it that are, that are quite simply letters written to specific churches. There was actually seven churches, that were, and, and the order that they come was probably the order that you know, the messenger would take from Patmos. He would go around, and it would be the order of those churches. Now, as a circular letter, it was slightly different in terms of being less context-specific than, say, Paul writing to Ephesians. Where he, or Paul writing to the Corinthians where, you know, there's a lot of detail of what's going on. So the circular letter has some less detail in that and also is meant to be a symbol of writing to um, the church as, as well. So it's, it's got this balance of being context specific, but also speaks to the church beyond. This, the idea of seven, that number signifies completion. And so it speaks to the whole church as well as just a specific church. Um, but it is specific. And it's also not self-contained. The, the, the chapters when we come to the seven churches that are addressed is specific but not self-contained because th- those themes that come up for those churches of being lukewarm Laodicea and all that, they, and, and Sardis who needs to wake up or else strengthen what little remains are. You're going to get wiped out and all this. They, they set the scene for the themes that are going to be introduced throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. So it's not just this sort of compartmentalized but John has written a masterpiece here. Like, be under no illusions. The amount of craft that has gone into this book, which would have been, first of all, read out aloud, is in some ways staggering. And so the, even the, the circular letters, they, it, it inducts us into the concrete and the theological realities that the rest is going to speak to. many things, many difficult things, actually, and many profoundly interesting things. This also speaks about suffering, particularly suffering under imperial power and how God will finally and fully conquer evil, wiping away tears, wiping away suffering. How is God going to do that? And how is a victory going to be won over a world that seems to cyclically go around imperial power and oppression? It is going to speak to the end times, the word eschatology, which is kind of a word for talking about the end of age and the study of that. It's a book about hope and a final vision of the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. Where God's plan is for taking a world. It, it's, it's a book that signals the most glorious hope for the Christian faith. That is a transcendent hope. It's a book about discipleship. It's a book about inspection. God, through Christ, standing in the middle of the seven lampstands, the seven churches, going, walking around, going, like, what's really going on here? Pulling back the curtains, unveiling. It's about the quality of a discipleship in his church. Not just the words we say, but actually the reality of our lives. It's about the lamb on the throne versus the dragon, it's about how is how is the good going to be conquering evil and who and how is that victory won Jesus the Lamb on the throne. It speaks about scripture and hearing and a relationship to and a relationship to submission towards God. It speaks about true worship. It speaks about sexuality and money. Make no mistake, some of the, the lukewarmness was about money. Some of it was about sexuality as well. It's about mission to the nations. It's about healing and wholeness. And there's so many illusions. And one of the things you're going to have to wrestle with in the book of Revelation, is, it's interesting, it, it's saturated with the Old Testament and other books in the Bible. But it doesn't quote them like it does in other parts of the Bible it alludes to them and refers to them, but it doesn't quote them. So it sounds a bit like Ezekiel or Isaiah at points, but it won't quote them specifically. And so, you know, you, you, we, we start to see the masterpiece unfold. But one of the important things to get at this theme of awaken, our heart awaken before Jesus I think it's important to wrestle with the context of the letter. And I want to suggest that the context of the letter is not just about persecution, because it also raises an important question about complacency in the church. The traditional context that we used to frame um, the book of Revelation around was to pick up heavily on the theme of persecution, which clearly it was. I mean, I have this slight weird um, what's the word? Obsession. No, it's maybe not obs- curiosity with the Roman emperors. Uh, I, I listen to a podcast sometimes just going to sleep about uh, this guy, these two guys talking about the, the Roman emperors from Nero to Caligula, Domitian and I don't uh, maybe part of me maybe thinks I could make a good emperor. I don't know. I just, I just really like it. Um, no, I'm, I'm too nice for that. I realize that. I'm not ruthless enough. I couldn't kill my mother-in-law and all the stuff that they do but it's it's, I don't know. So, so there was an extreme. So Nero was a nasty guy. I mean, he, he would kill anybody. He genuinely would and did. And it, there was a genuine, like, horrendous oppression of the church that had, they're deeply persecuted for, in some quarters. And you can see that in some of the specific churches. They were so weak. They, just, they were so exposed to the ele- elements. And John was writing in Patmos, like, sort of sun bleached. Rocky Island looking out going like, Gee whiz, they're getting slaughtered out there. It definitely was a reality. But it was also a reality that syncretism and complacency were now in the charts. That sort of idea of just merging synchretism, just merging in with it. For some actually, the Roman wealth and power they give to them, do you know what? It was actually paying off and so they could turn a blind eye. Actually, money and comfort is just fine for me. It's working out just fine. So let's not rock the boat here. The emperor's on to a good thing. This, you know, the the pact for man let this just keep the peace. And actually there is a when you take the themes of the letter, seriously introducing the themes of the whole. One of the great calls is a wake-up call to the church to throw off this thing called complacency. And so it's not just about persecution. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the ESV, which is more literal than from. It's not just things from him or about him. It's of him. It's deeply experiential. In verse 3 in chapter 1, says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, And blessed are those who hear it, which is about obedience, and take it to heart. I prefer the ESV here, which says, who keep what is written in it. That word keep has a sense of who keep on at it, who persevere, who keep putting it into practice. That's where you'd be blessed. You'll not be blessed if you pick up a few tips that can talk to your punter in the bus about revelation. That is not what he's talking about. He is talking about people being lifted out of their their mood that their culture has put them in and thrown off a complacency, so they are awake and alert and alive. And from the outset, it's about awakening God's people out of their complacency. And this is one of the key things the book of Revelation is doing. It's purpose. And the prologue, the introduction verses, clearly strokes this urgent note, for the time is near, says John. Like, Further evidence of this um, sense of awakening and urgency is actually found in the book by its sensory nature. Eugene Pearson kind of points this out in his book Reverse Thunder. Um, he just picks up, highlights how John, the writer, is so heavily draws on the senses to his, his listeners. It's about hearing. It's about come up here and seeing correctly. It's about it's even about eating and ingesting and, 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 and taking in the words. It's even the incense talks of a fragrance, an aroma. And, of course, the warning to to Sardis speaks of just wake up. It's this whole imagery that is meant to awaken our senses before God. Eugene Peterson says this, Revelation pulls us out of our complacent doze and puts us on our feet erect before the reality of all Scripture. The intent of revelation is not to inform us about God but to involve us with God. That's what it's doing. So we need to wrestle with what what would dozing Christianity look like today? How could that be manifesting in the church today? How could it be manifesting in our lives? A sense of just dozing, not alert, and this is our task as we wrestle with it. Because John, the writer as a theologian, was very, very awake to the realities of Christ as the divine Son of God. The greeting of the and salutation of from John is distinct. It's typical in those days to, to write a, a greeting and salutation after you address who you're writing to, and the famous ones, the common ones, were Paul. Uh, use time time game which goes like grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now John in verses 4 to 5 has his own greeting and salutation clearly because he is awake to God and has meditated upon who is this Christ from a Christian perspective. And John places in his greeting and salutation Christ with God on the divine side of the distinction between the divine giver of blessings and the creaturely recipients of the blessing. So he clearly in his greeting says, look, this is from God, Jesus, to the creatures in their blessing. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, which is code for the Holy Spirit, just so you know who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. He's, there's, we're singing, holy, 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 and speaking of the blessed Trinity. Though he would not have put it in those words, there's a clear indication that John has an incredibly high view of who Jesus is. He would say, Jesus is the most important person who you need to make sense of in your life because he has reflected deeply on who Jesus was. Now, he has three, sorry, he has four designations or titles um, that he uses for Jesus in the book of Revelation, three of which were uh, in our reading um, this morning, that just underscore his whole concept of the glory of who Jesus and the importance of who Jesus is for our lives. They are the speaking of him as the Alpha and the Omega, the one who knows the beginning from the end, who is sense of guiding history towards its purpose. History's purpose and goal will be found in Jesus. Um, The second one is is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Reminiscent of the the Yahweh tradition where in Exodus, Moses, think back to the Old Testament, where God introduces himself. Who is this God? And he says, I am. (laughs) Say, I am sent me. It's a self-existent eternal God who is almost indescribable, But here, who's the one who is and who was and who is to come. third title is the Lord God Almighty. Again, this idea of being supreme over, Jesus supreme over the course of history and all its rulers. And fourthly, is the one who sits on the throne. No other thrones, other that are come anywhere near to the throne of Jesus. When I was thinking about Reflecting on the oral culture of the day, again, this idea of awakening, the sensory experience the hearer would have had. I wonder sometimes when we get it and we read it and we see it in our nice Bibles, you know, goat skin, whatever your chosen Bible is, and you start to faff around with it in ribbons and stuff and actually you lose some of the experience, but actually to actually hear in a culture you know, I wonder if it would send a shiver down the spine when you hear the whole thing read from beginning to end, and not least this this vision of Christ, the one who's dressed in, in a robe, the one with golden sash around his chest, the hair in his head white like wool, white as snow, eyes like blazing fire, his feet like bron- it, do you know when you start to describe it and verbalise it, it's a lot harder to, in that culture, to walk away from it and be like, I must be talking about somebody else. We begin to throw off the slumber when we hear one of the main invitations, which is of the book of Revelation, is to catch a fresh vision of the risen Christ, of the risen Christ Jesus. I think this is what's meant to motivate us in our pursuit that we have prayed about already. And I think we're meant to be motivated by a fresh vision of the beauty and mercy of Jesus. Jesus. And not motivated by a cosmic, scary Jesus. We'll come to that—how God uses His power—and how we'll come to that later on. But what the spoiler in that is now—I don't think what's meant to leave us is, is this abstract deity far away. Who, this just this horrendous picture of somebody so powerful and so disconnected. This was Luther's concern: how disconnected it was from the Jesus we find in the Gospels. That's not what we say. I think the motivation when we get into. Drill down in the depth of Revelation. Is we get motivated and compelled. By the beauty and the mercy of Jesus. Who is the lamb upon the throne. Of the one who said in chapter 1. Who loves us. Who loves us. And has freed us from our sins. My goodness we were singing of this God. Who is the liberating one. If you know Jesus you know he's a liberator. You know he's the one who rescues us. And. In some ways, the challenge, as I've wrestled with it, is is to allow this text to address us in all of its glory and mystery amidst the ordinariness of our own lives. I suspect not many of you come this morning right here sitting there going, Joe, I've had a vision. I've been in heaven this morning. And, you know, I suspect that's not the case. Our heads get down in reality and hard graft sometimes has its own deception, just the busyness of life. Our heads get down, we maybe just stop thinking. We just uncritically just go at life. It just comes at us. It's just what we do. We work, we eat, we you know, just do life, go to the gym, and life goes on and on and on, go to university. And sometimes that's the greatest enemy, that lack of thinking about, well, what if Jesus asked you to give up your career? What if Jesus asked you to move, job? What if Jesus asked you to go over here, go over there? What if Jesus has other plans for your life than the ones that you're looking at? <laughs> and in ordinary mode, we're going to just, I don't know. But there's something that just doesn't allow for that. And so we have to wrestle with the, the pace that our lives sometimes go at and the way it crowds out the space to listen to Jesus, the living word, speaking to us. And when we do, we can expect to find the liberator. These notes of urgency here are somewhat reminiscent of Christ, the storyteller who told parables. You know, Jesus, when he told his stories, his parables, he always had a sting in the tail. He provoked decision-making. He provoked urgency. He provoked wise action. He provoked the mystery of waiting upon the will of God. And most of all, he always just provoked In his storytelling, in his teaching, in his sermons, the surrender to himself, much to the offense of the leaders of the day. So the question then, as we begin this series, is how awake are we to the one who was and who is and is to come? That's the question that we need to wrestle with. How responsive, how alert, how awake, how hungry are we of the one who was, who is and is to come? It might feel a bit like you know, a spiritual full body scan at points. And you, and you, you, know full, you know those people who say if you could have a body scan, you know, so would you take it, full thing, right now? And depending on your personality type, would all answer definitely. Mine would be like, no thanks. Ignorance is bliss. I'll just keep on keeping on, and and and, and I'll you know I'll take my chances. It can be terrifying, that sense of the, a mechanistic, brutal, just exposure to the full reality of who you are. Here, this awakening, this spiritual scan is not, not like a mechanistic, machine-like scan that will just say, here's what's going on. Jesus is the one who's freed us, who loves us. And anything that exposes, it gets exposed to the gracious, loving heart of a God who is powerful and can deal with our worst days. And it won't overwhelm us and may not ever show us the true realities of our lives and sometimes the ugliness and the decisions we make. I don't think God ever just wants to throw all at us just to make sure you feel like a horrendous person. That word complacency I used this morning, and I want to be gentle with it because it's such an easy word to throw out to people as if life's not more difficult uh, difficult enough. But yet somewhere in that is the tension of being true to the call of Christ. But as we come and have our lives brought before him, it's before the one who's loving, who's freeing, the lamb on the throne, who will, not over, who will not crush us, who will not overwhelm us. And it's about knowing more of him, not just knowing more about him. This book is all about Jesus and may our lives be the same. Let's pray together. Father, we ask as we began our worship where to go, where to go to find God, where to go with our tears, where to go with our questions. And your answer to us is Jesus, the one who moves before, towards us, the one who is almost indescribable, yet has been revealed. Where words sometimes are going to trip us up and images because they awaken something that we can almost not describe. There is no one like our God. There's no one like you, Jesus. And as we come this morning, we worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.